We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw, we go tit for tat, we have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Moose and Rooms podcast. This is, I believe, the eighth iteration of the Moose and Rooms podcast. For Matt Rooney, I'm Joe Musso. We got a full slate for you today. Should be a fun show, Matt. But before we dive into it, we better be clicking on all cylinders today because we had a face-to-face meeting, the first in quite some time, my friend. One-on-one production meeting in person. I think that's the that, that's the first one in the history of this podcast. It, it was a been a while since we happened to bump into each other, hasn't it? You, you came out to the land of milk and honey, and I was happy enough to uh, to get a couple minutes with you out here in Lincoln. Matt, give us a little background. What were you doing in Nebraska? Because that's always the pressing issue when you are in Nebraska. Well, I will uh, I will touch on it a little bit more in detail later, but uh, to, this, was, this weekend was uh, a group of mine that I go with, the 10th annual baseball trip. We... Uh, Go to a different part of the country, see about four or five different, you know, minor league, throwing a couple major league parks here and there. And uh, this year happened to end up in Lincoln, Nebraska. We finished up at the College World Series, um, but Lincoln was the big stop for me because I got to uh, I got to run in and see my friend Joe. Uh, you're, you're too much. You're too good to me, Matt. And we dude, <laughs> we, we saw we saw an explosive game out there from the that was from the Lincoln was. Salt Dogs. Wind was blowing out at Haymarket Park, to say the least. Matt got to see me in my element shooting a little bit of a uh, little bit of salt dogs baseball. Matt, I got to ask you first and quite possibly last impressions, Lincoln, Nebraska. You know, I really only saw the park, so I'm not going to go into the downtown. Okay. Um, there's a lot of corn before you get there. Yes. Uh, on the drive from Omaha, so that's something. Um, the park itself, though, and I, I've been to quite a few minor league baseball parks. And that's got to be in, in the top half of the ones I've been to. I think a very, very nice park. It's lappable. You can take a lap at any time. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, Nebraska plays there too probably helps get, the, get them a pretty nice stadium. But it's a, it's a great park. A lot to do. Nice seating, good outfield area. I'm, I'm giving it a thumbs up, Joe. Giving Lincoln a you're, thumbs up. You're giving it a thumbs up, Matt. That, that's, all up. The, uh, that's all the validation we need. And thankfully... The man that I paid off to come up and compliment my work showed up right at the perfect time. Uh, I, you, beat, you beat me to that. I was going to touch on that. You got, <laughs> you got a fan club out there, Joe, especially at the, those Lincoln Salt Dogs games. We got people coming up to Joe, shaking his hand, saying he's the best sports anchor in, in Lincoln. You're doing something right out there, Moose. A, a small contingent, but but a uh, but a faithful bunch. Yeah, a loyal one. A loyal the, one. The Joe Musso fan. You know, it has to be the hair. Well, Matt, like I said, it was a, it was a pleasure seeing you, buddy. And uh, like, let, let's get this thing clicking on all cylinders because we do have, uh, you, you know, we we got a little, we got the ball rolling downhill right now, right? So, so you didn't want to go an hour on on the Lincoln Salt Dogs game? We could, we could dive into it. We could talk about uh, Kurt Smith and his resurgent season, but I think we'll save that for another podcast. Fair enough. One one last thing before I'm not sure if you knew this on the Gary Railcats, there was a former Fenwick Friar. Former Fenwick Friar on the Railcats. The uh, the shortstop Ryan Fitzgerald. Former Fenwick Friar played at Creighton. Friar up. I I, uh, I I saw the name on the uh, on the scoreboard there when he hit. It's like that name's familiar, and the face was kind of familiar too. I believe he's two years younger than me at Fenwick, but yeah, we did a quick uh, baseball reference search, and lo and behold, it was the same one. There you go. He uh, he obviously hasn't found his way out of Nebraska yet. Being no, you hit, you, if you're in two thirty, oh, okay. if you're in two thirty in independent ball, you're gonna. Have a tough time climbing the ladder, but I digress, Joe. Let's let's move on. I'm sure we're we're boring the people a little bit here with my Lincoln Salt Dogs analysis. Yeah, we're gonna jump right into it here, Matt, with a little bit of uh, NBA carousel talk. The, the championship uh, behind us, but still uh, still taking the lion's share of the headlines. The association, um, it's the best reality television show right now. NBA basketball, free agency talks. Matt, um, let, let's kick things off talk, talking about Jimmy Butler here a little bit. Uh, it sounds like there are some interested parties, but the asking price is high. Do you see Jimmy moving, or do you see him in a Bulls jersey next season? You know, I, I'm I'm always hesitant when I see Bulls rumors in the news, especially you know since Gar and Pax have been running things, because every single time at the deadline or the offseason you see Bulls involved on this guy, Bulls might be doing this or that, it almost always just ends up being smoke but no fire. Uh, mm-hmm. so if, I, if I'm betting, I'm just going to guess that Jimmy Butler's here because I don't think – Gar and Pax have uh, intestinal fortitude to, to pull off a, a big a big time trade and shake things up. Really, I think they think they're just gonna 
embrace the status quo here. I saw the rumor about them being interested in Andre Iguodala at a multi-year deal for 20 mil per, and that sounds much more bulls than, than blowing it up and trading yeah, absolutely. Butler, doesn't it? Absolutely. And if a Jimmy move is to happen, I think we need to brace ourselves because, in my opinion, it's going to be for a couple young guys and some picks. You're going to feel like you got cheated because that would be the only reason to get rid of them is to make that youth movement and kind of blow the thing up. I don't think that the Bulls are going to get what their asking price is, whether it be Phoenix pick, Boston's pick, whatever it is, or or a three-team deal to get into Cleveland like they're talking about. There's a lot of moving parts right now, but I agree with you. I just don't think that uh, that Gar and Pax do have the gumption, as you said, to pull the trigger on something whether it be in favor or not in favor of the Bulls' future. No, I, I think they are, like you said, that asking price from all of accounts is still ridiculously high, as it should be. It's got to be. Um, it's got to be. It, He's it, the hallmark yeah. of your organization right now. I, I don't like what Karin Pax have done, but that that's one thing they are doing, right? That that price should be astronomically high because he's a top 15 player in the NBA. Um, if not top 15, easily top 20. Uh, but I still think if they can get one of those top four picks from you know Boston, now Philly and Boston swapped, um, but Boston, Philly, uh, not LA is probably not going to move anything for Butler. But you can get one of the, into the top four, and you know you're probably not going to get a second lottery pick next year. But if you can get a, maybe another young asset, and maybe that top four is very solid. There, there's four or five potential superstars at the top of this draft. This isn't like you got one and two, and then it's a deep drop. You got was it Markel Fultz who's going to go one? Uh, Lonzo Ball is likely going two. But after that, you still have you know Malik Monk, Josh Jackson, and De'Aaron Fox, who are three potential superstars in the NBA. And I think that that's the asking price. They just haven't found a suitor yet. And I think that that's the only way that they let Jimmy go. Because Jimmy, Jimmy's never struck me as a, a banana boat rider. I don't think he wants to join forces with LeBron and chase something like that. I, I might be making too big of an assumption there, but I don't think that that's something that Jimmy would be pushing for to get out of Chicago to get into a better situation. I think Jimmy, and he said it, really enjoys Chicago for for better or for worse right now. I think I agree with you. I think Jimmy would very much like to make it here, but I also, or, you know, make it work here and all that and win here. But I also think he might see the writing on the wall a little bit and might know that yeah. as much as he does love it here, if he wants to win something seriously and have a chance at something, it also might not be here. That said, I think I'm with you. I'm not sure he'd be terribly thrilled to go pair up and be, you know, not even Robin in Cleveland. He'd be the number three behind, you know, LeBron, LeBron and Kyrie. But going to a team like Boston, he's, arguably the alpha in Boston. And he, from, yeah, but, from what we learned this year with him and, and D-Wade and Rondo, he wants to be that alpha. He likes being that alpha. Yeah, but if, if we're going to zoom out and look at the NBA, you got to kind of join forces with the Legion of Doom if you want to contend because I don't care if Boston adds Jimmy. They're still going to struggle to overtake Cleveland for the top team in the East. I don't care if Cleveland adds Jimmy. They're still going to probably have trouble with Golden State, conceivably, for this thing to be even competitive, Cleveland needs to add both Paul George and Jimmy Butler to have a super team. You'd obviously move uh, Kevin Love out in one of those two situations. I don't know how they make oh, that Gar and Pax should take him. They, they, By the numbers, Kevin yeah. Love, taking Kevin Love in that trade would be a perfect Gar and Pax you know, thing but, to do. My, my point being, it doesn't matter what moves are made currently unless there is some sort of agreement that brings four of these guys together. Golden State's still your team to beat. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure it's it's going to be terribly possible this year. I think you're going to have to wait until probably LeBron is, is has that chance to opt out in Cleveland and he can and kind of arc, you that, know, be, be a little bit more of an architect of where he wants to go and have a few a few more options and then kind of that brings me that brings me to the next point. I think that in these talks with Paul George, you've got to think that Paul George is trying to convince LeBron to come to LA next year because Paul George really wants to be in LA. Oh, I, I think, think that's could, I, I, I think he totally could play agree. I think he could play a year with the young guys and then move ship a couple of those young guys and some picks or however you need to do it to get LeBron to LA with him which would just be another conundrum and would do everything but destroy in my eyes any sort of legacy that LeBron would try and leave behind. A oh, third, I, if if he were to do third, that, you know, third jump to a different team chasing titles, just trying to group up with as many stars as he can. I think I, I, I would agree. That would be a big uh, knock on his legacy even more. But it wouldn't surprise me. 
No, it, it would not be shocked. I, I actually, think the man is so. If I was contrite. a betting man, I think it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, and I think, like we said, it, it's it's the biggest sports or it's the biggest uh, reality television show right now is NBA basketball. It, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I'm it just not doesn't even, make sense. I'm not even the biggest of NBA fans, you know that, but like this is. There's just there's always something to talk about. There's always so, something going on in the off season, that, extreme scenarios that could happen. It's really the only league that we ever really kind of see this in. And as we sit here and lament about Gar and Pax, David Griffin gets sent packing after going to three straight NBA Finals, bringing home a title. The timing there a bit conspicuous. I don't know if there was a grand plan that uh, that he wasn't on board with, but LeBron tweets out his thanks and. This sounds like it might have been more of a Gilbert issue, but uh, but conspicuous timing to say the least. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was a little bit shocking, especially because it came out like an hour or so after Mark Stein tweeted that rumor about Jimmy and, and the Cavs be, possibly being a, a match, and mm-hmm. it's just it, it's weird. Three you know three NBA Finals in a row, like you said, one championship. I'm I'm just guessing though. I mean, he is the general manager. I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now, but. LeBron is the general manager of that team. He, he they, they do what he tells them to do because they have to. And maybe he just, you know, he won his, con- he, he won his conferences. He won that, you know, the one NBA championship in Cleveland. The, the title, I believe, says it was a mutual agreement to, uh, to part ways. Maybe he just kind of wanted to distance himself from that and actually go be a real general manager somewhere. That wouldn't surprise me because LeBron pretty much signed the dotted line for Tristan Thompson. And- yeah, he he that, all the moves that uh, what's it uh, uh, what's what's the general manager's name? I'm forgetting his name. For Cleveland, yeah, David Griffin. David, David Griffin. Griffin. Yeah, Griffin. that's it. All, all of his moves that he's made have basically been, you know, kind of forced by LeBron. LeBron's kind of held his hand on the signature that you know signs off on the move. And I'm yeah, guessing he, that he just got a little bit. This is this was fun. I, I've won my ring. I've won an NBA championship, and now let's let's. Let's go to a new challenge. Let's try and build something elsewhere. LeBron's not going to do this forever, and maybe I can go build something lasting somewhere else on my own. You make, you make a good point there, Matt. Before we move on from basketball, i got to ask you, the swap atop the draft board, Thursday night, the NBA draft, whenever you're listening to this, you might be listening to this, and you might know who got chosen in all of the slots, but was Markel Fultz worth giving up what the 76ers gave up to get? Now what? What exactly? I didn't see the uh, the final so, deal. I just saw that they were swapping because I, I, the, the reports the I saw were Friday is, that they had the deal in place. But I they never swapped. Actually they the swapped details. three for one in a future first rounder. Now I'm not sure if that's next year or a year following, or if that could even end up have the having the probability or possibility of being a lottery pick. But it is three to one in a future first rounder for that first pick. And I, I don't know. I, like I like we said, we're not the foremost experts on NBA basketball or any of these college kids coming up, but I don't really know if Markel Fultz is worth the asking price there. I don't think he's putting any team over the top. I'm not terribly certain either, and I'm not going to, like you said, I'm not going to act like I watched a bunch of Washington basketball last year because they weren't very good. Yeah. Um, But that said, I mean, these guys, I'd like to think they know what they're doing. Uh, There's a reason that we're seeing his name as the, you know, surefire number one pick in this draft I, that said like like we were talking about it a little bit earlier this is a very deep draft I mean I, I'm not sure there's well Fultz might be the guy with the highest potential I'm not sure there's that much of a drop-off between what you're getting in Fultz at one or what you might be getting in you know Jackson Fox or, or Monk at three mm-hmm. um, so I'm gonna say no I don't think it was worth that swap but if they do they it's kind of like what the Bears did um, if they saw that as their guy and they wanted their guy and they saw an opportunity to go get their guy, I can't really blame them. Yeah. Granted, we'll find out a couple years down the road whether or not it was a stupid move. But right now, while I'm not sure I'd have made that, that move, they saw a chance to go get their guy and they took it. And you just said the key phrase there, a couple years down the road, because these are still, in some cases, teenagers. These yeah. are 20-year-old kids. These are guys who still have to develop physically before they can develop as an NBA player. So. Speaking of these draft prospects, Joe, did you see that Foot Locker ad, the Father's Day one? Oh, it was outstanding. That was fantastic. I think for uh, any of you who didn't see it, I, I would Google it. Just Google Lonzo Ball Foot Locker ad, the one where he was, he was basically making fun of his dad and all the, the, the tough spots he's put him in over the last year or so. But 
Finally. That, that completely Finally. switched the narrative for me on Lonzo Ball. I used to feel bad for him and like, kind of not like him. He was voiceless. He was I, voiceless before that. I've heard him talk. I've heard him go out and kind of – he has a sense of humor. He's funny. He can poke fun at it. I, I I kind of like the kid now. I'm kind of rooting for him. It was finally some self-awareness out of the ball camp that we hadn't seen before. And like you said, it was just very enjoyable. you, you got to Google that, uh, the Foot Locker app. Um, Matt, I think we're going we're gonna to shift gears here. Let's move on from some NBA talk. Again, the NBA draft Thursday, 6 p.m. on ESPN. Uh, there's, your, there's your plug, ESPN. I will uh, expect the check in the mail. But we're going to move on to baseball. It is obviously baseball season, and – the Cubbies are starting to turn things around. Maybe have found their leadoff hitter, Matt. Who would have thought Anthony Rizzo would uh, would be stri- would be would be this this type of a leadoff hitter? I mean, if it, it continues on this pace, he's going to finish with like seventy home runs at the top of the order. The the, the numbers right now, he's hitting uh, four forty. He's eleven for twenty five at the leadoff spot with three home runs and nine RBIs. Production at that spot that the Cubs haven't seen in a very very long time, and we could pat Anthony Rizzo on the back 10 times till Tuesday, but this is a guy who's selfless. And this is another example of his selflessness. He has been the leader of this team for the better part of a decade now, and everybody loves him, and he continues to surprise us and do things like this that really just take the self out of it and puts the team first. Anthony Rizzo is not best suited being in the one hole, but he knows that's what his team needs right now, and that just you know, another notch in his belt buckle of greatness. Yeah, he, like you said, he is a, a very selfless leader of that Chicago Cubs team. Um, he could be, you know, hitting three, racking up numbers, you know, RBIs, all that stuff. Instead, he's he's at the top of the order. While he has been hitting some home runs, he's, he's I don't think he's really taking that home run swing. He is trying to just hit for contact, get on base, put the ball in play. And, and for now, he's, he's putting the ball over the fence. But he's getting on, and you've seen a spark in the Cubs offense because of it. Yeah, he, he's definitely ignited them. And is this something that is a temporary ignition for the offense? I'd lean that way rather than a, a permanent fix. But one thing that's very important, and we will start to see this thing turn on its head if it doesn't continue, the bottom of the order has been getting on base for Anthony too. So he's really, and we've had this conversation before, he's really only been a true leadoff hitter when batting at the top of the order for, pardon me, when starting a game. Yeah. In the first That's his only true leadoff. The bottom of the order has really been producing in front of him and getting guys on base. And then Anthony Rizzo can be Anthony Rizzo. He doesn't have to sit there and, and work counts and take pitches any further than he does on a regular at-bat basis. But when that production cuts off from the bottom half of the order, then you actually see Anthony Rizzo facing some of the challenges that an everyday leadoff hitter does. I, I totally agree, and that's that's part of the thing when the Cubs are clicking all, on all cylinders that makes them so good is that bottom of the order like you were talking about. They're, they're so deep down there, too. I mean, they got guys like when Madden flips the uh, the pitcher into the eighth slot. They, they'll have guys like Baez or Almora hitting nine who are guys who are hitting one or two on most other you know Major League Baseball teams. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just going to ask you, and I kind of already gave my feelings on this, but – do you think Anthony Rizzo is the leadoff hitter for the rest of the season? No, um, no. Joe Madden mixes the lineup, and I wouldn't. I mean, if he keeps doing this, sure. I just I, I, he's going to at some point slump to some extent, which you know all hitters do. And I know, um, and I think they're going to do something. They think they're going to have a mix up. I think they are still going to go out and try and grab somebody um, yeah. who's a more not your prototypical leadoff hitter, but might be more suited, or like you said, grab somebody to hit you know four so they can bump Zobrist up to the top. And hey, I, I, know, I think that's more of their their path here. I know they love Zobrist in that three four slot because you like having a switch hitter there to protect your big hitters. But I think that's the truest leadoff hitter on the team right now. And I know he's still got ten some odd days before he comes back from the disabled list. But I think you bring him back from the disabled list and, and you try and work him up into that leadoff spot because. The, the focal point at the deadline needs to be another arm, as we talked about last week. Yeah, two. I, I would say two more arms if Kyle Hendricks is going to have uh, you know, issues. I know I forgot exactly the extent of his injury, but I know it's on his pitching hand, and that's something that you have to be aware of for the rest of the year. So I think it, to be safe, they, they need to go out and add you know, a top arm and then probably a middle tier arm but at the deadline again, rotation. got to applaud zero ego from, from Anthony Rizzo in, in this entire situation, and Big-time production at that spot. 
Yeah, he's he's stepped up and he's done exactly what the teams needed to do, and he's kind of put them on his back a little bit for the last few games, and they they went and took two out of three in Pittsburgh. Matt, I need you to put uh, our team on your back right now and give me a, a White Sox synopsis the last week in a minute. Ooh, I get a minute. They took you get a, you get a full minute. I don't know if you'll need it. They took five out of seven from the AL East bottom feeders. So, except, except, sorry, not quite bottom feeders. I believe Baltimore's in third. So, just cut that out and say five out of seven from the AL East. All right. Hey, Joe, I'm an honest man. Okay, <laughs> I'm an honest man. Uh, but yeah, they're fine. They're the White Sox. They are who they thought who we thought they were. Um, Avi's still killing it. Should be a should be an All Star, and that's about. Yeah. Oh, James Shields came off the DL. Um, he's looked kind of good, so hopefully you can string a couple <laughs> starts together. Together, we can trade him. There you go. That's my. Uh, that was talking White Sox. Talking White Sox with Matt Rooney, brought to you by Matt Rooney. We're moving on now, Matt, to uh, something that you know it's still a little thorn in my side. I've we've had some time to process it here, but uh, we're gonna do a little post mortem here on the U.S. Open. What were uh, what were your big takeaways from? Uh, the week-long spectacle at Aaron Hills in Aaron, Wisconsin. You know, I think what we learned is the U.S. Open can't I, – I think I, I probably said something different uh, last week when I said I like them trying some new courses and all that. Thank new, you. New, new, st- new styles you. of no, – I'm going I'm to adjust you. Not new courses. Just cut it short and say, Joe, you were right. That's no, all you need to do. No, yeah, I'm not going to say that. But the, the whole wide fairway, you know, impossible rough – doesn't work. It, it doesn't work when it's wide open like that. And it, if if the wind's whipping like it could have been, then then you got a chance, and it might be a little bit difficult. But again, it has to be whipping for four days. It's a lot like whistling straights. If the wind's going out there, it's tough. But if it's not, these players are going to tear it up because there's so much fairway to hit. And exactly, they, they a, tore perfect, it up. a perfect venue for a PGA Championship. Yes, a I was I was having a conversation with my brother about it yesterday, and that those were his exact words. He said, "It's, it's not a U.S. Open course. It'd make a great PGA Championship course." Now, I think this is something that we've now seen a couple times, whether it was at Chambers Bay, at Kiowa, or now at Aaron Hills. You can't have, if you want scoring to be near par at a U.S. Open, if you want that to be the difficulty level, you can't have a course that doesn't punish you. You can't have the difficulty be contingent on Mother Nature. The difficulty has to be built into the golf course. I don't care if you have a 700-yard par 5. These guys are going to drive it down there, hit 3-wood, and have a wedge into not the hardest greens in the world. These greens were receptive, too, because of the rain. You need to reduce these guys. You need to force these guys to make a decision, and you need to have these fairways be 15 yards wide and immediate punishment. No first cut, your no second cut. Your first cut needs to be your rough. And those are the types of things you see when they grow pebble out or at Shinnecock or at Oakmont or at Bethpage. The punishment is built into the course. The punishment isn't the wind. The punishment isn't hoping the course dries out in time, the punishment's already there. These types of courses, these let's try it and see how it goes courses, trying something new courses, the punishment is, it it varies. And it varies from day to day. And I think that's what we saw. You saw a record low round. You saw a record total low. And these were all, you know, these were all products of a course that just didn't have the punishment built in. Yeah, the fescue was tough for guys to get out of, but if you were in the fescue, you were so far off that you were not in contention in the first place. I, I'd like to see a stat of how many times Brooks Kepka had to come out of the fescue. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was almost like Rory said, too, beforehand. I mean, granted, Rory didn't have the greatest week, but these fairways are 60 yards wide. Stop complaining about the rough. If you can't hit a drive into a 60-yard wide window, you don't, you're not going to win the U.S. Open. You deserve to go home, and that's, that's what happened. These, these guys weren't missing fairways because the wind wasn't whipping. And it was 60 yards wide. Joe, you and me can hit 60 yards wide probably three out of four times. Yeah, and it was – you have to expect that. When, when you're bringing something new, when you're going to a new course, you're welcoming the unknown. And now we know what Aaron Hills was in a U.S. Open setting. Will they ever go back there? I'd lean towards no. I think that these experiments hopefully can get us back to the classics, can get us back to – like next year, we'll obviously see a classic at Shinnecock, but yeah. it's only a matter of time, and I'm sure they have the list already sketched out for the next seven to ten years, and there's probably a couple new courses on there that uh, we're, we're going to deal with some of the same issues of how are they going to set it up to have the punishment built in. 
Yeah, I, I, like you said, it, with coming back to Aaron Hills, it's, it's going to be tough to to justify that simply because these these newer, linksier style courses have so much fairway and so much room to hit. Where, like you said, the the way you're going to get punished is with the pros who are this good is Mother Nature, and the U.S. Open can't be a tournament that relies on Mother Nature to punish you. Yeah, um, it, the the British Open you can do that because you're you're guaranteed that the wind's going to be whipping out there. You don't have to worry about whether Mother Nature is going to show up or not. It's going to. Yeah, those elements aren't variable. Those elements are, you know, as we as we've said, built in already to those courses. And we can't take it away from them. Everybody played the same course. Brooks Koepka played some brilliant golf, just smashing the ball down past everyone, hitting decent wedges and. 14, 15, 16, there was a U.S. Open moment right there. His birdie, birdie, birdie stretched down the run that ended up distancing him from the pack. And you got to pat the guy in the back. You got to congratulate him. He played the same course as everyone else, and he came out on top. Yeah, I, and I think I saw his longest drive of the weekend was 379. 370 And he did that with a three-wood. Yeah, and that was this course, too. There were yeah, a I mean, lot of shoots and ladders that were going to spit you down to the same area. And I'm not – I'm, I'm, it definitely was part of the course, but – the 379 yard three would still pretty damn impressive. Yes, no, you, you can't uh, you can't diminish that at all. Uh, it was a big week for Brooks, but not the biggest week for viewership. It was the second worst viewership in U.S. Open history since it's been televised. We were lacking star power. Yeah, that's we, the we only way lacking, to put it. And that's the PGA Tour right now. I don't want to take anything away from your Ricky Fowlers and your Jordan Spieths and your Dustin Johnsons and your Jason Days, but the the focal point, which used to be Tiger Wood, is now spread out amongst, let's say, a group of eight guys. So you kind of got people who are fans of one guy, people are fans of one guy, people are fans of another guy. No one is really garnering the attention of everybody right now. And when you and when you don't have any of those guys in the field, other than Ricky Fowler, you're in trouble. Yeah, no, no one's really gone out and kind of grabbed that torch yet. Uh, it's, it's been there to grab, and there have been a couple times we thought Rory was going to do it when he won those two majors a couple years ago. I think we thought DJ was going to do it a little bit earlier this year. We thought Spieth might do it, you know, with back-to-back uh, Masters, you know, top two finishes there. Uh, and nobody has. It seems like once anybody's about to jump to that top spot, they have a setback and kind of regress back to the middle of that, you know, like you said, eight or so golfer, you know, top pack that we're, we're seeing now. And nobody has... So, taking that opportunity to grab the brass ring. So that makes me want to ask this question, Matt. When are we going to resign and accept the fact that what we saw with Tiger Woods may never happen again? It was a generational talent. We might see it again in 20, 25 years. But when are we going to stop trying to make it happen? I don't See, I don't think fan, general fans are trying to make it happen. I think they want to see something like but I think you and I know that what we saw with Tiger is something that we're not going to see again. And after we kind of saw each of these golfers have their like I was saying earlier, their their couple moments of dominance here, a couple tournaments in a row of dominance. I think we've seen that these guys aren't quite up there and that's okay. But like you said 20, 25 years down the line might be the next time we see it and it it, it is a generational thing. Tiger was we, we might have taken it for granted a little bit at the time. But Tiger's probably the second best, you know, maybe, might be the most talented golfer, but he'll go down as the second most accomplished golfer to ever play. That's because, not something that rolls around every day. We want to make this, you know, we want to make it seem like we have that next guy here already because that's just what we do in the society. Same thing we're doing in the NBA with and LeBron. And then once LeBron goes, we'll try and say, who's the next guy who's going to beat you in the next Jordan? There's just not that guy right now, and that's plain okay. And simple, plain and simple, not how things work. Think about the gap between Jack and Tiger. You had your Faldos, and you had your Azingers, and you had your you had guys in that era who were somewhat dominant. Your Watsons, other guys, but there was never Jack. You were trying to make a new Jack, and it wasn't Jack until we found Tiger. So I think these are things that just come about, and you know them when you see them. But we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, if we have to debate it. Um... Yeah, it's not. If, if we're debating it with a twenty-year-old, that might be different. But if we have to debate it with a bunch of guys who have been on the tour for you know three, four, five years now, it's it's not. He's not up there. They're not at that level, and they're probably not going to get to that level. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Matt. If we're anything, we are accountable. How did your picks do at the U.S. Open? Um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't good. Not good. Not good. I, I believe my I believe my pick was John Rom. 
John Rahm and Louis Oosthuizen. You, you, Louis Oosthuizen was my sleeper, and Louis was okay for a little while. I believe he made the cut, so I'm not going to be. He was my he was my sleeper, so I'm not going to hold myself accountable for that one. Yeah. Uh, well, John Rahm, though. John Rahm, what happened with him was exactly what you told me your concern was with him. He was going to miss a putt and lose his head, and, and it's exactly, exactly what happened. Missed a couple and that of ways, lost the whole of the tournament. Yeah. And he was done. So uh, he's got to definitely uh, go back to the drawing board if he wants to put himself in contention in the big tournaments. Because as we saw, that fiery temperament might not be what you need to win a major, especially U.S. Open. Brooks Kepka barely smiled the entire week, even after he was holding the trophy. So I think it's that mild mannered temperament that uh, that leads to wins. My picks: uh, Ricky yeah. Ricky Fowler finished tied for fifth at ten under, and Charlie Hoffman, my sleeper, finished in eighth place at nine under. So. Uh, I think that uh, I, I could come out of here not with a win, but uh, I come out of here happy with my picks. You certainly were the winner of the podcast host predictions. So is I'll the, give you that one. Will there be a check in the mail? Is there a trophy, or is this just bragging yeah, it, rights? Oh yeah, it's it's on the way. Just it'll be. Or how about let's do it like this? Let's do it like this. We'll wash the Masters because I don't know if we were live even during the Masters, but next two tournaments we will let's add up. Our players' total earnings at those tournaments, okay. and then there will be a money winner at the end of the majors, and winner will figure out some sort of uh, lose. Loser can buy the uh, buy the golf for the the winners. There it is. There we round go. Round the golf pays for uh, the round of golf. Total, total money list. I like that. I like that. Matt, we'll uh, let's close up shop here on the U.S. Open, but uh, take me into grievances here, and uh, I'm going to give us a little bit more, uh, a couple more golf thoughts. Matt, hit it. <laughs> The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. You can't handle the truth. Boy, have you lost your mind, because I'll help you find it. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. All right, man. At the conclusion of the U.S. Open, we saw a gap. Uh, Joe Buck slips up and calls uh, Brooks Koepka girl, his girlfriend Becky Edwards instead of Jenna Sims. Now we are of the understanding that Becky Edwards is Brooks's ex-girlfriend and Joe Buck kind of had to wear that one on the chin. I don't think this was indicative of the Fox broadcast as a whole. I think that Fox did a pretty good job aside from some shoddy camera work, not being able to find some balls here and there. I thought that the Fox broadcast in year three took another step forward. I enjoyed Joe Buck's commentary. Paul Azinger brought a little something different to the table, but everyone wanted to use this moment at the end, which was a massive slip-up, and they wanted to say that, oh, this is what the Fox broadcast was all week. I wish that yada, yada, yada had the call and this, that, and the other, and they took Joe Buck to the task like they do for everything that he does. I want to make one thing clear. Joe Buck is responsible for the work of hundreds of people on that golf course. Fox broadcast probably... There were probably two to 300 people just behind cameras in production suites, doing editing, doing a million different things to get that broadcast on air. And Joe Buck has to be the face of all of that. He has to wear the criticism for all of that. Joe Buck's not Googling Brooks Kepka's girlfriend. Joe Buck is handed a card by a research assistant that says the girlfriend's name on it. So when that moment is there, he has something to say. He was handed a card with the wrong name on it. That's not Joe Buck's fault. That is a production assistant or a research assistant's fault. But Joe Buck has to wear that. These are things that we need to step back and take a second and not have this immediate Twitter reaction on a guy who by all means is at the top of his field. Joe Buck is great at what he does. And that's a lot more than anyone can say about their own occupation. Joe Buck is an elite broadcaster, and I don't think it's a case of nepotism. I don't think it's a case of him having good broadcast partners. Joe Buck is a professional. Joe Buck did a great job for four days at the U.S. Open, and I don't think that a moment at the end where he says a girl's name wrong should wipe out all of that hard work. And another point that needs to be made, Brooks didn't look too excited to see his girlfriend after the round. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Joe, I think that's well said, and I think, like I said last week too, I, I'm I'm pro Joe Buck. I'm with you on this. I think he gets an unfair rap, and and 
You we're, and we're I know pro, we're a pro buck podcast. Pro buck, but you, you and I know better than anybody else that, like you said, Joe Buck isn't the one looking up Brooks Kepka's girlfriend's name. He has people doing that for him, and ha- like you said, handing him a card, and he goes goes off that and trusts the people who are hired to do their jobs. And somebody screwed up, and it wasn't his, not his fault. The research assistant, you know, Googled and clicked the wrong article. Yeah, and and does that does that research assistant feel worse than anybody in the world? Yes, because he could have had the best week of work of his life, working a U.S. Open, hanging out with Joe Buck, doing whatever he needs to do, and it's it's a black eye, it's a scar, it's a bad moment, but I don't think it should be. Uh, I don't think it was the overarching message that Fox put forward. I think Fox did a pretty good job this week. Loved all the pro tracers, loved all the different technologies they brought in, but uh, yeah, it's just unfortunate that. That is now par for the course, no pun intended, that when one bad thing's happened, we paint the entire picture with that brush. Well, the the age of social media doesn't really help. Yeah. Well, we're pro Buck. So we're great pro job, Buck. Joe. I, I know Joe Buck is a, uh, is a weekly listener, so Joe, you did a great job. Joe Buck, friend of the podcast. <laughs> friend of the podcast. Hopefully, we can get him on here. Uh, we'll make a couple calls. Man. I'll pull some strings. All right. Uh, let's jump into the mailbag. All right. We got uh, a U.S. Open-themed one. With the, uh, the U.S. Open wrapping up, this one comes from Seegert one on okay. Twitter. Joe, give me your, your top three favorite U.S. Open venues. Top three. Well, I think that, you know, this... this... The question said top. I, I cut it to three because I don't want us both okay. naming off, you know, okay. seven or eight different courses. I think this... like, give me three. Doesn't have to be in any order. Just give me three of your favorites. I think this goes back to our initial conversation that uh, it really is... It's a matter of history, and I go back to these historical courses. I'd say my top three are Pebble, Oakmont, and Torrey, just because of the ghosts that live at those courses, because of the air that surrounds those courses, because of the moments that have already happened and that are yet to happen. We expect drama when you go into those theaters. When you go into an Aaron Hills, when you go into a Chambers Bay, you don't necessarily know what to expect. So I'd say Pebble, Oakmont, and Torrey, and my second answer would be Anywhere but Aaron Hills, Kiwa, and Chambers. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, I, you must have been eavesdropping in my mind when I was coming up with my with my three favorites because I swear, Joe, you stole all three of mine. You got uh, them? Three for three on picking mine. Um, like I said, Oakmont, I think, has got to be – is my favorite course. It's just – it's so challenging. Like you said, it, it's a classic U.S. Open course. There, there's so many different ways that they can punish golfers and challenge golfers on that course. Pebble is obviously it, it, it's self-explanatory. It's Pebble Beach. Um, it's it's probably the most famous and one of the most difficult courses in the country. Iconic. Uh, yeah, exactly. It is iconic. And and Tory actually for different reasons I like because I've now played it and know it a little bit. Um, it, it, it was absolutely a humble brag. I wanted to say <laughs> to you that I played Tory Pines, um, but yeah, the, Bring it. I should, should I? Maybe I'll just change the Twitter avatar to Matt played Tory Pines. There you go. Um, but yeah, I those are my three courses, and Tory Pines will also too always hold a special place for me just because that's that's the last place we saw Tiger. You um, get me choked up here, man. I, I know, and, I, and trust me, I. It was tough for me to get through to last night when I was thinking about what I wanted to say, but that was the last place we <laughs> saw Tiger beat Tiger. Yeah, uh, and that, that actually that actually reminded me of another point. While my predictions may have been, you know, all over the place, just spot on, we did not get the Monday finish that that I had predicted as well. So no, we will okay. wait another year for for a full eighteen hole playoff. That and that's another thing about that Tory. U.S. Open too was it not just the 18 hole playoff, but the guy Tiger was going up against too was just you know Rocco mediate the you know everyone loves Rocco early 50s you know can't hit the ball off the tee farther than 270, but he's out there you know same consistent golf swing stroking it, sticking wedge shots that's you know five feet whatever it was and just competing with the best in the world when he had no business competing. And that's and that's the flip side of this coin with the courses. Now, if you were to put Rocco mediate on. Chambers Bay, or if you were to put him out at Aaron Hills or one of these courses where you have to be a bomber, he's got no chance. If, if, if you're at an Oakmont or you're at a Pebble or you're at a Torrey, these guys know how to get around these courses, and it doesn't have to be a home run derby. You can win it different ways, just like they can punish you different ways. Aaron Hills was just a one-option course 
you had to win it one way and you could only be punished one way and that punishment kind of never came mm-hmm. honorable mention too I, neither of us mentioned it yet but another u.s open course i like and does have history to go back to on is, is pinehurst yeah. Pinehurst is always a, it's such a challenging course, and I believe not last time when Keimer won it, kind of running away, but the time before that, I think uh, you know it was one of those where over par was winning, and it's it's an old course, it's historical, it's challenging. Those greens are so tough, and that that for me, I think, is a uh, one that deserves to be mentioned up there too. And that Pinehurst, uh, that Pinehurst U.S. Open 2014, I believe it was uh, Martin Keimer. Yeah. that was the lowest rated U.S. Open, the only one lower rated than this. Again. Minimal star power, minimal drama. So I know there's no way to artificially implement drama or get these guys to play well, but the PGA Tour really needs their names to come up for them in the second half of the season because the first half of the season hasn't had the panache that years past have had. And I know you're all about panache, Joe. I'm 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 95% panache, Matt. I would have gone even even higher. <laughs> all right, Matt. Let's hit some buy or sell. All right, start us off. All right, Matt, we're going to go hockey here with the expansion draft coming down the pipe at us. Vegas, baby. Vegas. Here's my buy or sell. Buy or sell, Trevor Van Riemsdyk is a Chicago Blackhawk next season. Uh, I am going to... And if you could, Matt, before you buy or sell this, give our listeners a little bit of background on maybe a couple quick seconds on how this expansion draft does work. So each team, I believe it was either yesterday or the day before, uh, released their protection lists of players that they can protect. Um, and I believe the way it works is if a player had like a no movement clause in his contract, like Kane, Taves, Keith all have for them, they would need to waive that in order to be exposed into the draft. So teams are basically forced to protect a lot of those guys. Otherwise, you probably would have seen the Blackhawks expose a guy like a Marion Hossa. Um, that said, they... I believe two years or younger in the league, you'd also are exempt from the expansion draft, so teams don't have to protect you. But essentially, you get, uh, I believe it was seven forward slots, four, three or four defensemen, and a goaltender you got to protect. And from there, Vegas gets to pick one uh, from, from each team, uh, one player from each team. So it was a little bit rough and choppy there explaining it to you. It's, no, it's no, stuff, no, stuff no. without in front of me, but uh, yeah. Made perfect sense. I, I, believe, so I believe in a couple days, too, is when we're going to see them pick their teams. But there and we that's go. Just, that's exciting for the league. To, I, I know we're just kind of treating these guys as commodities, and a lot of people's lives are going to change. But um, but it should be exciting to see. TVR, buy or sell, is a Blackhawk next season. I, I'm going to sell that one hard. Um I don't mind Trevor Van Riemsdyk. I think he's he was he's been a fine Chicago Blackhawk the last few years, not maybe as good as, as Joel Quenville regards him, but he's been a consistent Blackhawk. But uh, he's a guy who I believe his contract is up after next year. He's going to be due for a raise. And there is also a, a from what reports have been saying, granted it hasn't happened yet, um, the Hawks in, in Vegas are not the only ones to do this, but there's an, a bit of a handshake agreement that if the Blackhawks agreed to expose Trevor Van Riemsdyk in the expansion draft, that Vegas would take on Marcus Kruger's contract, uh, which – the Blackhawks kind of need Marcus Kruger can be a, a nice player for them, a, a you know bottom six center, and the Blackhawks can get that much needed cap relief, and they'll probably take something like a, a fourth round pick back. But you're going to see the the interesting thing here now that I've already said I sell because uh, I believe he will be a Vegas Golden Knight. A lot of these teams are making under the under the table handshakes agreement handshake agreements with Vegas where they will say I'll give you a first round pick if you don't take player A that I'm going to expose because I don't want to use a slot on him. So Vegas is going to probably rack up reportedly like five or six different first-round picks from teams saying, hey, I'm going to leave this guy exposed. Here's a first-round pick. Don't take him. Hmm. Uh, It's another interesting wrinkle into this whole expansion draft. Uh, While Vegas might not get a lot of valuable players from the expansion draft, they're going to have a whole lot of assets and picks, and I believe they can talk to free agents a week before anybody else can as well. How Vegas of them already. Vegas, baby. Vegas. All right, hit me with one. All right, where was I? Buy or sell. We talked about Anthony Rizzo a little bit last night, but uh, or earlier, but last night he uh, he had that collision at home plate, ran over the catcher, looked like he could have avoided it, but didn't. Buy or sell. Anthony Rizzo deserves a one-game suspension. I'm going to buy that just by rule. I think that that – collision at home plate has been taken out of the game in my opinion for worse uh it's it's obviously reactionary to when buster posey 
snapped his leg in two, and you never want to see that happen to a catcher, but that's a uh, that's collateral damage. That's kind of a, a, an occupational hazard when you play catcher in the major leagues. You're going to have some six foot four guys, some big dudes like Anthony Rizzo barreling down on you. Uh, Rizzo, I think, just kind of thought it was t- 2010 for a second, and he flipped the switch in his head, and he thought, "I got to dislodge this ball somehow," because he knew he was gonna, he wasn't gonna beat, he wasn't gonna beat the ball home. The, the ball was gonna beat him there. He had to somehow dislodge the ball. So I think that was him trying to play a little old school baseball by rule. Do I think he should get a game? Yeah, give him the game. What's the big deal? He's not hurting. I mean, as long as everyone's healthy and that's what they're trying to do is reduce injury at home plate. I think that, you know, he, he did break the rule there. But the bigger conversation of is the rule wrong or is the rule too soft, I, I, I miss collisions at the plate. And I know I'm the same guy that enjoys fight sports and kind of likes the, the carnal nature of athletics. But I think that that's part of the game. And you, you remember, you think back on so many historic collisions at the plate that in big moments, you think about the the A.J. Barrett moment, and I punched A.J. and made him an all-star. These are these added depth, and they added narrative, and they created rivalry because you don't have that in baseball other than guys jawing at each other and occasionally charging them out. Within the field of play, while the ball is in play, there are a few ways for guys to really go at one another, maybe sliding spikes high into second base or, or, or doing something a little bit uh, on the fringe. But this was the way that you sent a message in the old days, and you can't do that anymore. Yeah, I'm with you. And while I'm not a huge fan of the of the rule, I do like like you like those collisions at home plate. Um, I do think he broke the rule. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think he did it intentionally. I think I saw an article in the Trib this morning saying, you know, it was a dirty play. And Anthony he like half went into it. He like no. wanted to slide and didn't want to slide. He looked like he looked like the eighth grader that like still didn't know how to slide, like couldn't decide if he wanted to go head first or feet first. I'll be honest with you. When I kind of when I saw the headline, I didn't see it live last night. When I saw the headline this morning, I went on, you know, went on Google and found a clip of it, and I, I was expecting you know lowering the shoulder, barreling through with a truck stick type thing. No, it was like you said. He kind of tucked in the heels a little bit, tried to slide more so, like pushed off with his hands and kind of collided with the knees. It wasn't anything like I'm dirty, I'm trying to hurt you. It was, he kind of caught himself in between and just yeah. acted reactionary. He didn't, look, he didn't look happy with himself when he got up. He no. looked like he was feeling it on his shoulder. It's kind of like, what did I just do? Yeah. yeah. So give him a game, take away, slap him on the hand, do whatever you need to do. But uh, like we said, I don't, think the, uh, I don't think the rule is doing anything good for the sport. Maybe protecting the players, but that's it. No, who cares about the players? Eh, they come and go. <laughs> they make enough money. Matt, I'm going to hit you with another one here, and I know you're going to talk about it a little bit more in depth later, but uh, College World Series, buy or sell – is a bucket list sporting event. You are fresh off the College World Series. I got to experience it a little bit last year. I'll be covering the finals next week. Uh, buy or sell bucket list sporting event for sports fans out there. You know, if, if you're a sports fan, especially if you're a baseball fan, uh, I definitely got to buy that. The The atmosphere in Omaha is fantastic. It's, it's a collection of just a bunch of different, not even diehard college baseball fans, but just baseball fans and college fans. People come from all, you know, all different parts of the country, not even just you know the teams being represented in there, uh, you know, just to come watch and, and represent their schools, all that stuff. Omaha is a fantastic host of it, uh, and that stadium is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, uh, it's fantastic. They did a great job building the new one. Uh, on, uh, from the outside too, it looks it looks unbelievable. Um, I would I would absolutely have to say yes. I think it's there's there's something about you know the the majesty of Omaha. Great! Um, wow, well, I just said the majesty yeah, was, of Omaha. I've never, um, this is the first time those words have ever been uttered. I no, but it. you know what? It's the, that venue. Yeah, there's you a know, mystique. It, it's, it, there's yeah, a mystique. The mystique is the right there. word. There's the right a mystique word. that's only there for twelve days a year, and it's amazing to see the foil of it. It's amazing to see Omaha, just normal Omaha, and then see Omaha during College World Series week. It takes on a whole different energy. It's really something to something to behold. Yeah, and that's that's now this year the the second uh, NCA you know Big Four I would guess sports championship I've been to I was at the Frozen Four too when it was here, and those those events in general are just they're unique and they, they bring a different collection of fan that you probably don't see every day at you know your your major league ballpark or even if you're you know at your college team's game it, it's it's interesting to see these these different collections and groups of people all kind of come together 
and just watch baseball for the love of baseball. Yeah, a lot of a lot of straight up baseball fans, and a lot of uh, when you get those when you get those fans from down in the SEC coming up and supporting their teams. LSU does it better than anyone. Uh, there was a lot of purple, a lot of yellow in the crowd yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome to see those fan bases travel the way they do. I'll never forget when I was young. Uh, I went to a Notre Dame Nebraska game. Oh yeah. Funny that I'm not working in Lincoln, but went to a Notre Dame Nebraska game at Notre Dame. Eric Crouch lit up the Irish, and I just remember turning to my dad and asking him, "Why is there so much red here? I've never seen this much red." So just to see fan bases travel the way they do, I think the College World Series does a great job of putting these fan base bases on the biggest stage. Also, if you haven't been watching, you got to tune in, especially if Oregon State's playing. I believe the next time they jump into action is Friday. They're 2-0 currently sitting in the catbird seat on that top bracket. They have the lowest team ERA in the last 40 years of college baseball. They have a team ERA of 1.86. They are outstanding. They scored 13 runs yesterday, so it's not just a pitcher's team. I think they come out of here on top. I don't think anyone beats them, and they're really a blast to watch if you are a true baseball fan. Well said, Joe. I'm, I'm with you. That Oregon State team. I was watching a little bit uh, the game last night on TV. They're 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 fun to watch, and they are like you said. They're they're just good. They are. All right, Matt. You got one more for me? I do. Um, Going to go back to our, our NBA talk a little bit here. Uh, we touched on the top the idea, the prospect of it, but buy or sell when LeBron James is a unrestricted free agent in 2019, he leaves the Cleveland Cavaliers. Ugh, there's so much to unpack in this one. And I think that he doesn't even really have an inkling of the answer to that yet. I think that it's something that he's willing to entertain. Oh, by the way, Joe, I should correct myself. He the contract ends in twenty nineteen. He can opt got, out, I believe, after got, yeah. after next year. After yeah, next year. Yeah. Sorry about I'm that. Gonna, for the sake of argument, I'm gonna go ahead and buy it because I'd love to see it happen, because I'd love for him to become the villain again. He's kind of oscillated between hero and villain his whole career you know he he gets to cleveland as an 18 year old straight out of high school and he's supposed to be the savior he takes them to a height they've never been before leaves because he couldn't get it done now he's the bad guy he's in miami he's the bad guy he wins the bad guy my favorite lebron era was him in in miami as the bad guy now he comes back to cleveland as a savior i think that the ebb and the flow of lebron's career could only indicate that yeah he's got to be the bad guy again at some point but if you're lebron and you are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, let's say generously seven to eight seasons from now, I think he's going to want to finish in Cleveland. And does that mean another move back to Cleveland or he stays there for the long haul? I don't know. But I think that there is enough heart in that man's body to want to finish where he started and finish for his fans that he's so revered throughout the past. So I'm not letting you off the hook. Are you buying or are you selling? I'm buying. I think he leaves. I think okay. he leaves and then he comes back. I think okay. he goes to the Lakers for three Again. seasons, wins one with Paul George and whoever's left there, whether it be Ingram or Russell or whoever they pick up. I think that he wins one there and then he comes back to Cleveland and finishes in a walker. I don't know. How does he announce his re-return to Cleveland? I think he doesn't. He just leaves. He picks up and leaves like the Ursays out of Baltimore and he just in the in. Under the cloak of night, he just drives alone in a Ford Escort all the way out to L.A. That's what he's going to do. Or no, a Kia. He's going to drive out in a Kia because LeBron drives Kias, right? Well, that's the, the the NBA would like to tell you that. No, if he does leave, I don't know if – you know, it, it would have to be kind of low-key. I think that – LeBron either, doesn't do low-key. It would either be a Players' Tribune article or his agent would come out and say it because if you didn't learn from the decision, you're never going to learn. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. All right, Matt. Well, that's been the Moose and Runes podcast this afternoon. I think we hit some good stuff there. We were golf heavy, but uh, had to kind of shake off a little bit of, uh, of U.S. Open cobwebs there, get our thoughts out on the table about that one. Uh, you got anything for the people before we shut this down? Hey, you know, they say this is the uh, this is the, the slow season in sports, so there's not much to talk about, but I think we're doing a pretty good job here, huh? We, we, we do a good job of uh, stretching it out and talking about what we need to do. Obviously, we didn't hit uh, – we didn't hit our usual fashion topics as we as we do on a weekly basis, Matt. But uh, I, I, actually, I can hit that real quick. You can hit that. What, did, what did you think of the baseball trip T-shirts? The baseball trip. If, t-shirts. if you'd like to see them, by the way, there is a picture of me wearing one 
in uh, tweeted on the Moose and Runes account. So there you go. Not in a bad word, in a word, ostentatious. I'd say. I don't know uh, what that means. I enjoyed them. They were highlighted yellow like you'd never seen before. Like you need an SBF to stand next to you. Um, they were an outstandingly soft dry fit, which first and foremost, the comfort level when sitting at a baseball game is paramount. So you guys definitely did that. All of the logos on the back, very well done t-shirt. You had your sayings. I want to know, were those logos cleared for copyright? Because if not, I'm going to have to I'm gonna have to send this one up the ladder and you guys might be getting a call from, from a couple legal teams. Uh, on the record? On the record. On the record, yeah, we own all the, uh, we, we've made calls, we, we own all the copyrights. You own rights yeah. to all of the yeah, Every single one. Um, Perfect. We definitely, my, my brother Tim definitely doesn't, find the one t-shirt company in the city that will blatantly disregard <laughs> all copyright laws. He does, definitely doesn't a, do that. He's got an under the, day, under the table agreement with your screen printing guy. I we, got, we, got a, we got a t-shirt guy. We got, we we got, got a, a guy. Well, you guys look fabulous. Uh, I, I actually, when I got to the park to shoot the game, I shoot from the concourse uh, right behind home plate and I give Matt a buzz. He goes, yeah, look out in the right field. You'll, you can't miss us. And there's about... 10 to 15 guys just like a beacon in the distance in just highlighter yellow, radiating color. So he was not hard to find. Yeah, you know, the last few years, I, I would say the shirts have been a little bit toned down colors, not not the bright highlighter yellow. But um, we always usually get, you know, people seeing group in the same T-shirts kind of come up, ask us, you know, what our story is, all that stuff. But this year, I would say we had a few more, uh, you know, ask us because the, the shirt does stick out a little bit, especially when you were uh, walking in a pack of, you know, five or ten at a time. Yep. And Matt, I know uh, that's that's your topic of our uh, of our shutdown today, so why don't you go ahead and shut us down. Let's do it. Shut it down. Shut it all down. Shut it down. Shut it down! Houston, we have shut down. I've seen enough. Shut it down. So, uh, to, like we just talked about, touched on a little bit earlier, this was the, the 10th annual uh, baseball trip. Uh, what started off as, I believe, four or five going on a, a road trip one summer in college or just after they graduated has now grown to, um, oh, I don't know, probably 20 or so on a given year making, you know, either part-time appearances on the trip or full-time. Um, and it's just, it, it, it's a fun trip that I've been lucky to be a part of. Uh, what we do is every year we pick out uh, four or five different stadiums depending on how we can you know, manage uh, you know home team games and when, when teams are at home, but go to about four or five different stadiums in a different part of the country. Usually, try to hit places we haven't seen before, but there's obviously going to be repeats along the way. But we go see some minor league baseball games, throw in a different uh, major league stadium here and there. And when you go to these minor league stadiums, you uh, you tend to stick out a little bit more because you don't have the most enthusiastic of people there, and we have a, a rowdy group of 10 or 15 getting very loud and heckling umpires and rooting hard for the home team. You tend to stick out a little bit more. But uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a trip that's created a bunch of stories, uh, a lot of memories. One that my first, I think, was in 2000, oh, I, maybe 12, uh, was when they did it for my brother's bachelor party. And I got to be honest with you, when I first went on it, I said, this is probably the only time I'm going to do it. I don't see why I would want to do this again. And then I went on it one time, and I will never miss another one as long as I could. I flew into Omaha to hit just one one game this year, but I wanted to make an appearance out there. And it, it's fun how many people on this trip have gone through the same story as I have. They just went on at the one time for a bachelor party for a guy who was getting married, and now they will never miss it again. Um, but it, it's a great trip with a great group of guys. It's, it's created a, a bunch of different memories, and I just wanted to give a, a shout-out to Baseball Trip 10. Um, that's all I got. Awesome, Matt. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you to the Baseball Trip guys. I know we got some regular listeners in that group, so hope you had a blast this year, and uh, it was definitely a pleasure to have you guys out in Lincoln in the Omaha area. So uh, make that College World Series one. Maybe as we talked about the U.S. Open venues, make it a regular in the rotation out here at the College World Series. Cause maybe, we'll try, maybe we'll try and get there a couple times. We do have, we do have lodging in Omaha. One of the, the baseball trip members lives a, uh, about a driver away from, the, uh, from TD Ameritrade. That's awesome. So thank you to the baseball trip guys. Thank you to all of our listeners. Remember, subscribe to us on iTunes. We're on iTunes now. You can catch us on SoundCloud as well. Follow us on Twitter. We will post links of this on Instagram and all the other social medias that uh, 
you kids are interested in. Matt, it's always a pleasure talking with you. That's Moose and Runes podcast, the eighth episode. I feel like we're uh, we're falling into our groove here, Matt. It's a pleasure talking with you. Hopefully, you have a good week, and I will talk to you on next Monday. We got. We'll have a bunch to talk about NBA draft. Hopefully, hopefully a uh, a Jimmy Butler trade, but I doubt it. Have a good week, Matter, and have a good week, all of our listeners. Episode, episode eight in the books. Bye. bye. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome.